Welcome everybody to the Funds Title Now podcast, where we talk about topics of interest to real estate attorneys, title insurance agents, and the settlement services industry in general. I'm Melissa Murphy with the Fund, and I have the pleasure to host these conversations. We are hearing a lot of questions from fund members and other people involved in the industry about force majeure clauses in contracts, contracts generally, contracts for sale and purchase, and leases. And so we want to talk today about how force majeure clauses work in this pandemic. How have they been traditionally uh, interpreted by the courts? And how might they be interpreted differently, if at all, in today's world of this pandemic? Is the pandemic an act of God? I've decided that that really might be a philosophical question, better suited for your Zoom happy hour with your friends and colleagues, although I'm not sure it would be a particularly popular topic. Um, But it is rather philosophical in its slant. So we're going to talk about that today, how courts might deal with force majeure clause in this pandemic. We will also talk about good language in contracts, bad language in contracts, um, and how you can better draft uh, your agreements for your clients. I'm very excited to have two fund members with us today that have a lot of experience in this area. Manny Farrakh is well known to fund members across the state. Manny regularly presents case law updates to our uh, real estate councils around the state and other industry groups. He is only one of 15 members of the Florida Bar that are board certified in three areas, real estate law, business litigation, and appellate law. Last year, he... Uh, received the Justice Anstead Board Certified Lawyer of the Year. That's quite an honor, Manny. Uh, Congratulations. So we're very lucky to have him with us today. Mike Hargett is no slouch either. Mike is a partner with Barnett Bolt in Tampa, and his practice focuses on business and real property litigation. He is currently chair of the Real Property Litigation Committee for the Real Property Probate and Trust Law section of the Florida Bar. And Mike is also board certified in real estate. So we have the experts of the experts today. Welcome, Manny and Mike. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, Manny, if you could kind of lead us through sort of the maybe you would call it the evolution of the force majeure clauses or concept. Help us understand how we got to where we are today in Florida. Sure, sure. And and one thing that's going to be helpful, Melissa, is if we start talking about definitions right from the very start, because sometimes uh, courts and sometimes us, meaning folks in in the real estate industry, use force majeure interchangeably or perhaps a a little bit loosely when we really need to be more more precise. There are really three things that that comprise the broad topic 
of force majeure. And, and those are impossibility, impracticability, and frustration of purpose. Those are three distinct and different concepts under law. And let me explain those three real quick, and then we're going to go through them in Florida, under Florida law. Impossibility is a, a situation, a defense to a suit for performance of a contract where performance has become literally and objectively impossible. What are we talking about? Destruction or deterioration of the thing that's necessary for the performance, death or incapacity of a person, or the government taking action in some manner, shape or form. And keep that in the back of your mind. What's the classic situation of impossibility? If I, Melissa, am a promoter putting on rock concerts and I come to you and I rent out your hall to put on a rock show and uh, a week before the concert's going to be held, the hotel where the uh, hall is burns down. That is impossibility. <laughs> You're not going to be able to put on that show. Now, Pretty impossible. Probably. Um, now, impracticability is a little different. And keep in the back of your mind, we're only going to talk about impracticability a little bit because it's not really recognized in Florida as a defense. But impracticability is when performance becomes excessively burdened or inordinately, inordinately more difficult. That typically means us, money. And finally, frustration of purpose. That's when the principal purpose of the contract is substantially frustrated. Now, there is one theme that sort of ties all three of these defenses together, and that's that the particular event that occurred uh, was unforeseen and could not have been for, uh, could not been foreseen through the use of reasonable diligence by the parties. Why the courts impose that particular requirement? Why? Because they don't want it to get in the business of second guessing the risk allocation with the parties. If the parties allocate risk in a particular fashion, then they don't want to get in there and start saying, no, that really wasn't risky enough, or you could have foreseen that. But in a situation where it's unforeseen or unforeseeable, then the courts are going to apply one of these concepts. All right. Let's uh, let's go directly to Florida law. There's a uh, a case called Crown Ice Machine, which is uh, from the Second DCA, 1965, which sort of lays this out, and that's probably considered the seminal case in Florida on on this concept. And it says that impossibility refers to factual situations too numerous to catalog where the purposes for which the contract was made have become impossible to perform on one side. Frustration of purpose, on the other hand, refers to a condition where the contracting parties find that the purpose for which he bargained and which purpose was known to the other party has been frustrated because of the failure of consideration or the impossibility of performance by the other party. I'm only saying that, only giving you that quote because it gives you a little bit of a flavor of how the language that's used 
in some of this case law is a, a, a little imprecise and it makes this a little difficult. But keep in mind the three concepts that we talked about from the very start, and that'll make it a little easier to go, go through these things. All right, let's talk about the second one, which is not in Florida. And you need to know that it's not in Florida. Why? Because someone may try to use it even though you're in Florida. And that's the concept of impracticability. Now, impracticability is that performance, performance which is inconvenient, profitless, and expensive. The Hornbook definition of impracticability comes from the Restatement of Contracts Second, Section 261, and that says, where a party's performance is made impracticable without his fault by the occurrence of an event, the non-occurrence of which was a basic assumption on which the contract was made. That party's duty to render that performance is discharged unless the language or the circumstances indicate the contrary. What would be a good example of impracticability? Well, folks of a, of a certain age um, with a couple of years of experience under his, their belt, such as myself, uh, recall the uh, Arab oil embargo of the 70s. And uh, what was very interesting there, uh, if you lived through it like, like I did, uh, not only was it hard to... Um, to get uh, gasoline for your cars, but uh, it was uh, it was pretty difficult for airlines to uh, to get aviation fuel for their airplanes, and when they could, it was enormously expensive. And a lot of folks, uh, a lot of companies said, "Hey, wait a minute, um, we have a uh, impossibility situation here." And some courts said, no, what you have is an impracticability situation. Uh, you can still perform the contract. You can still deliver that, uh, that barrel of uh, aviation fuel. Uh, but instead of it being $20, it's going to be $120. So it's just more inconvenient, more expensive. But it can still be done. Now, force majeure is in this vein. But what force majeure is, it is a, quote, contractual provision allocating the risk of loss if performance becomes impossible or impracticable. And I'm quoting from a, from a case in the materials, ARHC. Now, notice what I focused on in my language. I said impossible or impracticable. So what a force majeure contractual clause can do, and they all don't do this, but it can expand the scope of defenses to performance beyond, beyond impossibility to include impracticability, which under common law is not recognized in Florida. And Mike's gonna go through the examples. He's gonna show you how these work. But that's what a force majeure clause does. It allows you to be, quote unquote, master of the universe and decide how you want to allocate your risk. So it sounds to me, Manny, 
that judges have some leeway to use their discretion as to whether or not they categorize a certain sequence of events or an event, a catastrophic event, as either impossibility or frustration of purpose under Florida law. And what I also hear you saying is, despite the case law, it truly boils down to what is the language of the contract? In answer to your questions, uh, the first one, kind of, sort of, yes. And the second one, an absolute yes. Um, it kind of, sort of, yes, because there is some discretion there. Not every situation is going to fall clearly and cleanly into one particular category. And judges, being human beings, uh, have to, to make a judgment call as to what it falls into, what category does it fall into. Is it truly impossible or is it merely impracticable? Now, there is a good deal of case law throughout the country and, and a fair amount in Florida itself as to which category it falls into. But um, yes, yes, it, it, it allows the parties to really sort of make it clear to any reviewing court uh, where in this panoply of particular situations it may be. So in, with regard to, to the, actual, the, the actual events of force majeure, we're, we're historically talking about things that are acts of God, hurricanes, earthquakes, and other natural disasters, which are impossible to predict. Um, but not necessarily, to, to, to expand more on your question, they don't always lead to a conclusion that there is a, a defense to performance in this particular situation. Now, preventing delivery of electricity to a city has been found to be an act of God when a hurricane prevented the delivery. Now, that's the Florida Power Corp case that we have in the materials. But typically, and I know where we're going with this entire conversation, courts typically don't consider government policies that affect profitability of a contract, but don't preclude performance as an act of government for force majeure clause purposes. So what does that mean? Um, let's say you've got a landlord situation and a tenant that's a restaurant and you've got a, uh, you've got a tenant that uh, is in Miami-Dade County and, uh, and the county has closed restaurants to in, inside dining, to any dining, only, only takeaway. Does that affect profitability? Oh gosh, of course it does. Does it affect the ability to perform? Well, that landlord is going to argue, of course, that what happens here is that, no, it doesn't affect performance, it just affects profitability. And unless that force majeure clause is, is broadly drafted, that tenant still has to perform. Tenant, on the other hand, is going to argue, no, that force majeure clause 
is is covers this example, and I'm excused from a performance. The the second thing that people have to keep in mind with regard to force majeure clauses is the act has to be beyond the reasonable control of the parties. Now, there's been a lot of discussion on force majeure clauses in, um, in the real estate context, but one of the interesting things about this entire COVID discussion and the pandemic discussion uh, and force majeure, uh, look at the parallel contractual situations we have with business interruption insurance. If, if you've been reading the news reports, you'll know that uh, obviously a lot of folks are making claims on business interruption policies. Well, there's an interesting thing in some of those policies. Uh, Wall Street Journal says about half of the policies have a virus exception. Mm. And in some courts throughout the country are requiring physical damage as part of the actual ability, the ability to actually recover under the business interruption policy. So you gotta, gotta look at what your particular language says and you have to figure out whether it's beyond the reasonable control of the parties. Third thing that the party's gotta look at is causation. Is there a direct connection between the actions, whatever happened, and the excused non-performance. Co-workers strike, not a force majeure event. Because why? Because a company that is required contractually to deliver the coal can get the coal from somewhere else. Just because there is a strike at one particular mine or one particular area of the country doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to get that from somewhere else. So, Mike, let's talk about how our listeners can better understand whether their particular contractual provision is helpful or not. Uh, what kinds of things are you seeing out in practice where you've now tried to utilize these concepts that Manny has reviewed, and then you're looking at the language in your contract, and you're trying to figure out how to make it work for your client. Help us with what you're actually seeing out there in contracts. Certainly. And uh, today we'll use the uh, uh, the Florida Bar uh, residential as is contract as a as a basis for what we'll we'll talk about. So if you if you have a far bar contract, grab that. I'll give you the specific citation in a moment. But I want to step back just a little bit, Melissa, because I said exactly when you posed the question to Manny. And the, the issue is very simply, these are contract provisions and the words force majeure when they're the title of a clause have no independent meaning. Therefore, this is basic contract interpretation. You have to read the clause. Essentially, what does the clause say? And I'll take it through three steps, a very simple, who is, in, who is excused? Uh, the more detailed and most important analysis is, you know, what is force majeure defined to be within a particular clause? And then finally, specific exclusions and limitations that the parties may add on. So the as is a far bar residential contract for sale and purchase, everybody probably has access to it. Uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna be referring to section 18G 
That's lines 425 through 435 of the FAR bar contract. So if you have one, uh, grab it. <clears throat> the first question, and, and, and I, I make a point of, 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 of this because it's a very simple question, you know, who is involved? In the FAR bar contract, you see buyer or seller. In leases, you commonly see landlord or tenant, both parties. But don't make that assumption. You'd be surprised at the number of force majeure clauses that only excuse the actions of one party and not both. So don't jump ahead to that. Uh, so don't, don't skip that step. I've seen people do it. It causes quite a bit of problems. The, the step two and the most important step is the list of force majeure events or the definition of the words force majeure. Uh, remember, as Manny previously said, the force majeure clause allocates risk. If the event is on the list, then the risk has been allocated to the non-impacted non member by excusing the obligations and duties of the impacted uh, member to the, to the agreement. Conversely, if the, if the event is not on the list, then the risk has also been allocated. In that case, it's to the impacted party. Now, the FAR bar clause is tight, and when we look at list, if you look, if we, if we look at the list, and in this case, it's a definition of force majeure, it reads, quote, force majeure means hurricanes, floods, extreme weather, earthquakes, fire, or other acts of God, unusual transportation delays or wars, insurrections, or acts of terrorism. The list of force majeure events can be tightened or broadly. Continuing to read the FAR bar clause, you see an example of what I call a fault exclusion, or Manny referred to this. Uh, the, the clause continues in the FAR bar agreement with, which by exercise of reasonable diligent effort, the non-performing party is unable in whole or in part to prevent or overcome. Now you see common language similar to that and, some, and a little closer to what Manny said, that common language would include things such as, quote, provided such event is not the fault of the party delaying in performing the obligation under this lease. So that's the same. You cannot have created the problem and then claim an excuse under force majeure. So those fault exclusions further limit or tighten the list. And the FAR bar list is a finite list. It's not open-ended uh, and, and not an unrestricted list. This makes sense when you step back and you look at the purpose of the FAR bar contract. That contract is designed for the sale of homes. We want homes to close. Certainly the, the Board of Realtors uh, uh, definitely wants closings to occur. So you can understand why there are very few outs provided in the, in the force majeure clause in the FAR bar contract. We don't wanna give people a reason to walk away at the last minute. We want some certainty when you get to the closing table that it's actually going to occur. However, that's not the case in most force majeure clauses, particularly if you look in leases or other contractual provisions. So it, you have to look at what type of language would broaden the force majeure clause beyond a specific list of events. Look for open-ended or catch-all language. The word including by itself in, as part of the list or including but not limited to, attorney's favorites including without limitation, all of those languages imply that the list is not finite, that it's open and broader. If you look at the FAR bar contract, the list does not include the word, in, the word include is not there. 
So if you do see, a, if you're reading your force majeure clause and you see the word including as part of your list, you can assume that the list is broader than what is stated there. So Mike, I have a question about that because when you read the FAR bar provision, you listed the things like hurricanes and unexpected weather, et cetera, and then other acts and other acts of God. Is that sort of a clause that can be argued to have broadened the possible types of events that are covered by the force majeure clause in this FAR bar contract? And specifically, is this pandemic an act of God? I thought you might ask that, but I will ask you to bear with me and kind of save that question for the end, because I think that opens up some interesting conversations. So I'll circle back. If you'll permit me, I'll circle back and I will try to address that specifically at the end. Uh, it's the question of the, of the hour, the question of the day. So in addition, uh, you know, it, it, of course, it does contain that one phrase, other acts of God. That's, it says other acts of God. So it is in, in the contract. Generally, uh, other acts of God are interpreted to cover natural disasters and events not specifically listed. Uh, but you have to beware. A party cannot assume that a court, particularly those that narrowly construe force majeure language, will interpret acts of God to include dissimilar uh, events. So there's a concept in the law of, of the these specific includes similar items or, it, or it, it does not include those items. Florida uh, Florida does not follow including dissimilar items in his list. So, uh, and, and I'm gonna circle back to that at the very end and we'll talk about whether or not the, the COVID-19 pandemic might be perceived as an act of God. So again, to reiterate this section, read the list carefully, look at what the list says and look for things that would expand that list beyond just what is specifically stated. The word acts of God is one of those. Now, the step three in the analysis of the clause itself is our exclusions or limitations. Uh, so basically you've, you've identified the parties that, that have the right to have their actions excused based on a certain set of events. The clause has then defined what those events are. And now we want to talk about things that might be specifically included. The, uh, the FARBAR contract is well drafted uh, in one particular manner because it does give us guidance as to how long uh, you're excused and what, what, if the, what if the pandemic, for example, goes on forever? You know, is there, is there a right uh, out of it? So the FARBAR contract provides specifically all time periods, including the closing date, will be extended a reasonable time up to seven days after the force majeure no longer prevents performance under this contract. So it tells you we've got seven extra days, but then it goes on to provide that if such force majeure continues to prevent, prevent performance under this contract more than 30 days beyond the closing date, then either party may terminate this contract by delivering written notice to the other and the deposit shall be refunded to buyer, thereby releasing buyer and seller from all further obligations under this contract. So for example, Melissa, if the pandemic was an act of God, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, then you have seven days after the end of the pandemic to complete the closing and either party, since it's gone on too long, could, could walk away. 
the, however, the most common exclusions uh, involve the payment of money. Uh, money typically is not seen as a, as a, uh, a force majeure event, uh, but sometimes you'll see specific language, uh, particularly in leases, about that. Uh, one common clause is, the law, again, another lawyer's favorite, notwithstanding the foregoing, quote, except as otherwise provided herein, the occurrence of such events shall not excuse tenants' obligation to pay rent or excuse such obligations as this lease may otherwise impose on the party to obey, remedy, or avoid such event. And it's certainly handy for many landlords today if their force majeure clause had exactly that language that made it clear that that payment of rent was not excused by, for, by a force majeure event. There's a lot of those disputes happening today. If your clause is silent and doesn't have that language, don't give up. Because uh, I had one case recently where it was silent, but if you look into the rent section of the, uh, of the lease itself, it also had a clause within the rent section that said, quote, there is no right for tenant to abate or set off any rent for any reason whatsoever pursuant to this lease. So there you have a specific clause that would overrule the general that's contained in the force majeure clause. Uh, and as a, as a last uh, uh, comment on the general uh, uh, limitations and exclusions and interpretations here, remember Manny's comment about foreseeability. Is it reasonably foreseeable? We all know about COVID-19 right now. So if you're evaluating a, a force majeure clause that was drafted last year, Clearly, the issue of whether or not COVID-19 would, would qualify as a force majeure event, you have to make that determination. But moving forward, if you enter into a contract next month, we all know it's clearly foreseeable. So it's a completely different set of, uh, of, of guidelines. Now, the question of, is COVID-19 an act of God? Uh, Manny previously mentioned the, uh, uh, the Florida Power case versus City of uh, Tallahassee. I'll give you the citation for our members. That's 154 Florida 638. It's a 1944 Florida Supreme Court case. Uh, and that's the case uh, of a hurricane where the courts concluded that a hurricane was an act of God. Uh, and interestingly, in that case, the courts went to uh, uh, American jurisprudence and they looked at the reasons uh, that an act of God will excuse non-performance. And the quote uh, has been carried forward in other case law. It must be an act or occurrence so extraordinary and unprecedented that human foresight could not foresee or guard against it and the effect of which could not be prevented or avoided by the exercise of reasonable prudence. Now, that same clause has been picked up in two or three more cases. If you pull up, if your readers want to pull up Florida Power versus the city of Tallahassee, and jeopardize that case, you can look at uh, the several decisions that, that center around that. But if you look at that language, an act or occurrence so extraordinary and unprecedented human foresight could not foresee or guard against it, that's a serious question. We see it in the news every day today. You know, could it have been foreseen? We've got lots of movies on this, on this topic. We had the 1918 Spanish flu. We've seen it before. You can imagine the, the arguments that could be made to say that it's completely foreseeable. And then you have the, the and 
uh, modifier in that in that language, which says, and the effect of which could not be prevented or avoided by the exercise of reasonable prudence. We all see that every night on the news. You know, did we did our country do the right thing? Did we do the right thing and wear masks and not wear masks? So you can see the arguments right now almost mirror our political setting. And I think if you if you went back a few years right after this case was entered, you might get an answer by a court that says, no, the COVID-19 is not uh, does not meet an active guide. Uh, but again, we're still in the throes of this. Uh, if we were having this presentation one month ago, uh, prior to the big spike uh, that occurred in early June, I think many people would reasonably say, oh, no, it's, it's not that extraordinary and unforeseen. But now we're seeing a spike and we don't know where it's going to end. So I don't certainly I don't think we're in a position to predict how a court will come down because the timing in which you bring this issue before the court is going to is going to really depend. Uh, Manny, uh, you've read these cases. What's your thoughts on the act of God interpretation in relationship to COVID-19? It, it depends. And during these seminars, I try to give the attendees as much of a black and white answer as I can. But in this particular case, it's more gray than black and white. There are arguments that can be made both ways. Over the last 10 years, how many pandemics have we had? SARS, swine flu, um, you, you name them. There's, there's been several. So it's not, quote unquote, unexpected. It's, it's not completely unforeseeable that there be some sort of pandemic that would affect uh, the contractual and business operations. On the other hand, we've never had a pandemic. Well, we, we have, but not for 100 years that shut down the country the way COVID-19 has. The, the last one was the Spanish flu of 1918. So there's a good argument to be made that uh, this pandemic, under the circumstances of this case, are not foreseeable. And I really want to touch on two things that Michael spoke about, because I, I think that's the key to understanding force majeure clauses. And I want to emphasize so that folks understand this. One is, as Michael alluded to, not all force majeure clauses are the same. You're going to have to read your force majeure clause very carefully and read it with a fine tooth comb. Pretend you're an English teacher and just breaking it down sentence by sentence, clause by clause. Look at the look at the grammar, look at the punctuation. All of that's going to make a difference. And second, the, the key to, to understanding force majeure clauses is to focus on the foreseeability question. If it's foreseeable under all three possible defenses, chances are that you're not going to have a defense to performance. But if it's not foreseeable, chances are that you will have one or more defenses to performance. So th those are those are probably the two things to, to, to take away from, from this pandemic and, and force majeure clauses generally. So I have two questions. Uh, first, you all are both involved in litigation, real estate related litigation and business litigation. Are you seeing more cases coming your way where people are trying to enforce or defend based on these clauses? 
Yes, Melissa, we are seeing an increase in these cases in our practice areas, uh, particularly in landlord-tenant matters. A lot of tenants were impacted by the shutdown uh, and are looking for a reason not to pay rent uh, during that time period. Uh, I think clearly the uh, a clause that has governmental action and many force majeure clauses have the term governmental action in them. If there's a dark store clause in the lease where a tenant is required to operate certain time periods, I think you have a clear case for an excuse there. We've seen those and we've seen landlords want to remove a tenant uh, based on that. And we don't think those have a lot of merit. Uh, on the other hand, we've seen tenants try to extend it to payment of rent. Uh, simply because they were shut down. But again, as Manny previously stated, a, you're not prevented from paying rent. You were just prevented from running your business, which makes it harder or more difficult. But much like the air oil embargo, just because it's more expensive or less profitable for you tr is not traditionally a force majeure event. So Manny, are you seeing more cases? I am not, but I'm seeing a lot more saber rattling where folks are talking about this issue and pushing back and forth. Uh, keep in mind here in Florida, we're under both a, a mortgage foreclosure and an eviction moratorium. And so uh, a lot of these things are, are not really hitting the forefront yet. Additionally, uh, we had the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program that hit a, a little bit ago. So that helped some folks past this, this hump that we had over the last few months, I suspect we're going to start to see a lot more of, of force majeure debates, um, probably the next 60 days. So that, at that particular point, force majeure is going to become a prevalent topic of discussion in all contract negotiations and or disputes. Absolutely. Um, this is just such an important issue for attorneys, um, particularly real estate attorneys, but all attorneys to be aware of and familiar with. And uh, we have got to help each other learn about these and do the very best that we can for our clients. So with that, I will wrap things up. Uh, Mike and Manny, thank you so much for participating in this and offering up your expertise and your perspectives. Thank you. Um, and to the listeners, thank you all so much for tuning in. Um, and if you are a fund member, as always, thank you for your support of the fund.